Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The big game is almost here. Barring a blizzard, Atlanta is ready for Super Bowl 53. But how ready are Atlanta fans to welcome the New England Patriots and Los Angeles Rams to Dirty Birds turf? Erin Tarver is here to tell us more. She studies the philosophy of sports fandom at Oxford College of Emory University and is author of The Eye in Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of Identity. And she's joining us now on the line. Hello, Erin. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to out you first off as a Saints fan. (laughs) Uh, Are you eating those We Were Robbed King Cakes or voodoo doll cookie shaped like refs we've been hearing about. Oh, it's rough. Um, I have not joined the uh, the lawsuit that some fans are bringing to, uh, against the NFL. I'll say that. Then. You're, you're um, talking to the daughter of a <laughs> diehard Red Sox fan who, you know, had been following them for decades. And we still, you know, Boston Red Sox, Chicago Cubs, the Red Sox have done much better. But until 2004, it had become part of an identity to love a losing team. Exactly. The the lovable losers. Um, I I grew up thinking of myself as being one of those fans of lovable losers that, that my team would always find a way to um, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, so, yeah, one of the things that I try to investigate is this phenomenon. So what is it if it's not the thrill of victory? Um, how do we account for fans' persistence in being loyal to a specific team? And what I try to argue is that actually fandom is way bigger than just the experience of the euphoria of the stadium. If you think about what fans do, um, there's a wide range of practices. Um, We decorate our houses and our um, team's colors. We follow the minutia of um, drama around coaching changes in the newspaper. Um, We engage in debates with our fellow fans about who was the greatest quarterback of all time for our specific team. And all of those practices, I think, uh, contribute to um, not only our sense of ourselves as fans, but also they go toward helping us build a sense of our own identity. And I mean by that our identity as human beings. So our um, belonging to a particular community, um, our being uh, connected to our families, um, and all these other things that go into making us the type of self that we are. But when you say identity, it's Interesting that so many of us talk about sports as saying our team or we, we lost that one or we were going to win again. Exactly. And this is quite um, it, it, ubiquitous uh, in terms of fans, that fans, when they um, watch a game, uh, when, say, your team loses, um, you don't feel disappointed for them, right? You don't say like, oh, poor, poor those guys. That's really sad for them that they lost. Um, no, when the, the Saints were eliminated from playoff contention, I was like, oh, my God, I'm sad for myself. I'm enraged. I feel that something has happened to me, right? Um, or we believe that something has happened to us as a local community whose fortunes are bound up with that of the team on the field. Well, so you're bringing up something. Is it identity or belonging? Or are they the same thing? I would say those two things are inextricably bound with one another. Um, in fact, when we talk about how it is that human beings come to be the kinds of selves that they are, um, we don't know ourselves in isolation from 
other selves. And so, in fact, what's quite important um, in the formation of identity, and we know this not only from philosophy, but from um, psychology, and in fact, childhood development psychologists come to similar kinds of conclusions, that a big part of forming what philosophers call subjectivity, that, that experience of being an I, a self, um, involves a couple of things. Number one, it involves knowing um, not only what I am, but who we are, right? The I in relation to um, a we, a community to which it belongs. But secondarily, and I would say just as importantly, crucial for forming the I, is knowing who we are not. And I, I would say that this is one of the crucial features of sports fans and, and what they're doing in, in their sports fandom is not only loving a particular team and identifying with it, but also in many cases. Um, Hating the other team. Exactly. Well, <laughs> <laughs> in thinking yes. of fans of the Atlanta Falcons, were devastated when their team lost to the Patriots in the Super Bowl. This was just two years ago. Mm-hmm. So now... What are Falcon fans going to be feeling as the Patriots descend on their turf? Do they hate on the Patriots or do they unify around being Falcons fans who've been jilted? Or is it a little of both? My hunch um, is that uh, very often fans who have been let's say, jilted or who have had this sort of devastating experience of loss, particularly in the case of that Super Bowl loss, which involved a comeback victory by the Patriots, um, that what we see is this desire for revenge. Um, and since uh, the the Falcons are not playing in the, the Super Bowl, the next best thing to revenge is a phenomenon. Uh, there's a German word for it called schadenfreude. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and schadenfreude, as uh, as your listeners might know, means um, the pleasure we take uh, in someone else's misfortune, Um, particularly the pleasure that one might take in, uh, say, the impending hopeful loss of uh, the New England Patriots. So um, this is a really common phenomenon amongst sports fans, so much so that it motivates, in many cases, um, rooting against, rooting for the the downfall or the the comeuppance, we could say, of of a team who we want to be um, taken down a peg so that their their fans, for example, might feel the same um, humiliation or devastation that, that we did. Why in the world would anyone care about how well a total stranger can throw a ball? Well, that is a question asked by Emory University philosophy professor Erin Tarver. She's author of The Eye in Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of Identity. So people who are not into football, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I'm going to hide out inside of my home all weekend or I'm getting out of town and, you know, make a lot of money on Airbnb. How about those who are not sports fans? Are they getting, is the assumption that they are getting those identity needs met in some other kind of way? Well, sometimes the that discourse of saying, well, I'm not a sports fan. I'm going to hide out in my house. Is an like identity. That, exactly. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a way of building up sense of identity as well and saying, like, I am rejecting this sort of mainstream understanding of what good entertainment is or um, I'm actively, you know, suggesting that – you know, perhaps football is barbaric or that I um, am am above this sort of um, plebeian behavior or something like that. That way of relating to football, too, can function as the same type of activity of telling ourselves who and what we are. How about the idea, however, that football is barbaric or, you know, boxing is, but there are a growing number of people who do think 
you know, I don't want my kids to play football. It's too dangerous. We're seeing what repetitive concussions do to a brain. It's exploitative of uh, or, or football players in the NFL have no regard for women, that kind of thing. Why then do so many of us keep on washing? Is there a rationalization in this belonging? This is a question that I think those of us who identify as football fans need to be asking ourselves and and looking at ourselves pretty uh, carefully. As you say, it absolutely is the case that increasingly people are concerned about the health, um, long-term health effects of football, and that this is resulting in changes in behavior, particularly anyway, as regards parents' relations to their own children. So we do see in the last couple of years, actually, um, a drop off in participation in youth football. And in fact, uh, a growing number of uh, current and former NFL players even say things like, I will not let my son play football. Um, Drew Brees, the quarterback of the Saints, is is one person I know of who suggested that he wouldn't let his son play football. Um, So I think given that we know uh, when we're talking about our own children that there's something worrying about this, um, we ought to be asking ourselves why it is that we are willing to watch other people's sons continue to engage in this kind of um, at this point, demonstrably harmful activity. Now, as a, a philosopher who's interested in questions of um, ethics, I would say this is a difficult question, The whether it is, um, we would say, morally permissible to continue to play football. The most common response that I hear from fans, and I ask fans this all the time, um, about whether they think it is morally acceptable for them to continue to watch football, given what they know about uh, the correlation between football and traumatic brain injury. The most common response is to say something like, well, the players are adults, they can make their own decisions, and so this doesn't have anything to do with me. I think there's two things to say about this. First of all, the mere fact that the people who are playing the game are consenting, that doesn't yet tell us anything about our moral status as observers. So it, it could very well be that people um, consent to do things that there's something really troubling still about our um, watching it for entertainment. But secondarily, I would say the the question of consent here is a quite complicated one. And philosophers who study, say, medical ethics, um, a field which is really interested in questions of consent, will say there are a variety of factors that can compromise, that call into question our ability to participate in fully informed consent. One of the things that might compromise informed consent would be um, whether a person can fully appreciate the consequences of what they're consenting to. And so this is one reason why we would say that children, for example, cannot consent to medical procedures. They need their parents to do so because um, children lack the cognitive capacity to be able to fully appreciate what, what the risks associated with a procedure would mean. And this comes into play in the case of football because what we're talking about are people who have been playing football in many cases from the time that they were children. And so it's not totally clear that they have, from the beginning, been able to fully appreciate the consequences. Secondarily, the NFL has a rather checkered history in terms of 
making available the relevant information that that players would need to have to be able to make fully informed consent. So um, for years, for example, the NFL attempted to discredit and then sort of slow down the advance of research into the long-term neurological effects of concussions. More recently, they when they started supporting studies, it turned out that they might in fact be trying to influence the outcome of those studies. So um, it's not totally clear to me that players always have a full appreciation of the ramifications of continuing to play football. In particular, because we just have not had a lot of information about this for a very long time. So it's not just the players and the game. It's the actual power structure. Fan comes from the Latin fanaticus, right? You know, insanely uh, sort of inspired, maybe divinely inspired on some level. But the role of the fan in supporting a whole system is what I'm curious about. Fans are, despite the fact that we tend to know that there's something wrong here, fans remain attached to this practice because it has become part of themselves, right? They understand themselves, who they are, um, in part through their engagement with football. And so, understandably, there's resistance on the part of fans to critically interrogate this practice or to think about giving it up. But I think what we have to remember and remind ourselves over and over again, that the people in this practice, that the players on the field under the helmets and shoulder pads, they are real people. They are human beings, just like um, our own um, friends and family and sons who we sometimes uh, try to keep out of these games and to take their concerns seriously when they're raising them. Erin Tarver, she is Emory University philosophy professor. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Erin is author of The Eye in Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of Identity. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.